Before we begin our study tonight, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We are reading this weekend from Deuteronomy chapter 32, in which Moses in one of his final communications is giving stern warnings to Israel. And he is sounding an alarm in a sense. He speaks about the absolute faithfulness of God, which is a remarkable thing for someone who knows that God in his justice has decided that Moses will not go into the promised land. He can look at it from a distance, but he will not go in. And yet, rather than seeing that as rejection, Moses interprets that as an indication of the perfection of God's righteousness. He's not embittered, nor is he engaging in self-pity, unlike a normal response would be for any one of us who found ourselves in such a situation but rather he's praising the Lord and declaring the absolute faithfulness of God. Now, what's also challenging is that he's speaking to the children of Israel and he's telling them about the faithfulness of God, but he's telling the children of Israel that though God loves you, you're fickle. And in a way, you're nothing like him. You don't even act like his children. And so it can come across as cynical. I don't think it is. It could also come across as being fatalistic. This is just the way it's going to be, and that's that, and we started out okay, but the truth is this effort to raise up a nation holy unto the Lord, it's failed, and there's no future for it. Some people read it that way because they read prophecies that are negative prophecies with a certain mindset. They think that all negative prophecies are sealed in heaven and that they are a settled matter. And they, thus, they don't understand the purpose of such a prophecy. It's not to predict the certain future, but it's rather to have an impact on the people who hear. The prophet Jonah had difficulty with this idea. Do you remember the Lord sent him? And the Lord had a purpose. Think about what the purpose of the Lord was for Nineveh. It was not just to proclaim uh, that, that God was preparing to judge Nineveh. It was not just to articulate that, but it was in order to rescue the people of Nineveh, that God sent Jonah. That's why Jonah was sent, to rescue Nineveh. However, Jonah didn't have that in his heart. You know the story. Nor did he have it in his mind. And when he proclaimed this negative prophecy, you know, in three days you'll be torn down, he thought, good, good riddance. It was so disturbing to Jonah when the people of Nineveh repented. Because he was not in agreement with God's purposes. He was in agreement with the negative prophecy, but not the purposes of God. 
And in fact, he was whining after Nineveh repented. You know, why did I have to go through all this? Look, they turned. You know, you're merciful. Yeah, <laughs> what's wrong with you, God, <laughs> being so merciful? And, and the Lord has a sit down with, with Jonah and says, you're concerned about like a plant that's growing and you don't care about people? Your priorities are wrong, your values are wrong, your heart's not in the right place. In this day and age, many people, many believers like negative prophecies because they're hoping that a stern and vengeful God will get even with all of the people who oppose us or disagree with us or hate us or fight us or this or that. And yet that's not generally the purpose of negative prophecy. The purpose of negative prophecy is described here in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. You can turn there, Deuteronomy 32 verse 45, we'll start reading. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, these are the the proclamations of God's utter righteousness and goodness and the fickleness and unfaithfulness of Israel. Verse 46, Moses said to them, take to heart all the words of my testimony against you today so that. When you read the words so that, it's pointing you to purpose so that you can use them in charging your children to be careful to obey all the words of Torah. Here's the purpose. It's to help you so that you know how to give clear warning to your children about the importance of obeying God. For this, verse 47, is not a trivial matter for you. It's not a trivial matter that you would grasp it and that you could pass it on. On the contrary, it is your life. The words of God are your life. The instructions of God are life for you. Through this, you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. There you're getting to the optimistic, hopeful side. You see, I'm giving you these warnings so that it will touch your heart so that you will be open to the Lord and take really seriously this life with God. It's important to take it seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, you will have a certain future that's not what you're predicting or fantasizing. It's going to be terrible. It's not going to go well for you. So these words that Moses gives are not a sign of fatalism. They're not a sign of cynicism. They are a warning that is meant to be useful and helpful to the people. It's meant to touch our hearts and our minds and using the power of language to connect to our imagination so we get a clear picture. I remember my mother tried to warn me about certain things. Maybe you had... Mothers like that. One thing my mother would say is, uh, you know, don't run with those sticks, you'll poke your eyes out. 
as if it was sure to happen. And every time we ran with sticks and had sword fights with sticks and did not poke each other's eyes out, we thought, ah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And it made us more hard. I remember when my mother told me that I could not use uh, firecrackers. Yeah. She did not say I could not be friends with people who did because she wasn't thinking clearly about it. And she didn't even know what an M80 was. Yeah, so she didn't warn me about those. But a few mailboxes, I <laughs> could not endure the power of an M80, it's true. But I remember there was a certain time when my mother was trying to warn me at the 4th of July about the dangers of fireworks. And I'm thinking, Mom, all these people are using them. How dangerous can it really be? So I decide I will use the most innocent of fireworks, a sparkler. Right? Because what? You know, it doesn't even blow up. And I remember where I was when I lit my sparkler. Yeah, I was holding the sparkler and I lit the top. And you know how sparklers are supposed to go? There's you know, nice sparkle. Yeah, well this one didn't perform correctly. And the top of it, like this hot molten metal of some sort, I don't know even what the ingredients are, it didn't shoot up, it shot down onto my thumb. Yeah, right here where I was, yeah. And I remember watching this burning metal something just burn up my thumb, burn up the skin, and start burning down into, you know, the, yeah. Through. And, you know, with anything burning, if you wave it, you give more oxygen. And so I'm trying to blow it out, and that's making it even hotter. There was nothing I could do, and it just burned um, really a beautiful hole in my thumb. And then I had a new dilemma, which is I have to go home and explain to my mother what happened. And she's gonna say, I warned you. Yeah. And you know how boys are. Well, I was like that. <laughs> That's how boys are. There's fire in Yeah, fire is like, you know, we're, we're drawn, fire. <laughs> Why do we like to barbecue and cook on fire? Because uh, we're still playing with fire, yeah. But I can tell you now, I'm really cautious with sparklers. <laughs> and I have no interest in lighting firecrackers and all that. After the pain of that experience um, seasoned in my body, it changed my attitude and emotions. I wasn't thinking, how can I do this again? Because now my imagination is saying, Oh, the next time I get a sparkler, it'll probably, you know, like blow up into my forehead or something. I'm imagining worse, do you see? 
I'm using the power of my own imagination to see the consequences as they could be. The thing that she was warning me about, um, she was saying, oh, this could happen. You know, you could blow your hands off. It's like, with a sparkler, no way. (laughs) But she had good reason to warn us because my friends, for some reason, were relatively um, uncautious about, they were not cautious about safety. 12? <laughs> yeah. With fire. It, yeah, well, her warnings didn't have the immediate fact, but the experience of the thing she warned about had a lasting effect. So I'm 64 years old, 52 years later, I remember, well, she warned me. She tried to spare me. She wasn't trying to take away my fun, as I thought. And she wasn't paranoid, as I thought, or always negative regarding safety. You know, like, how can you be against everything that's fun? That's how I interpreted it. But I had to learn the hard way, but I did learn something from that. And maybe you have an incident in your own life where someone was trying to spare you and tell you, don't go that way, don't do that thing, get out of this, don't fall into it, don't fall for it. And you didn't heed the warning because it didn't make sense, given what you thought and how you fantasized and imagined things, and then you got into stuff and it was trouble for you. And now you know. I mean, many times adults will say to their kids, parents will say to their kids, when I was your age, no one could tell me anything, but I wanna tell you. And we try to warn them, sometimes unsuccessfully. What is Moses really doing? He's warning the children of Israel not because he's cynical about their capacity, but, he, but because he knows humanity. And he knows the forces that pull us away from God. The seductions, the lies, the, the half-truths that can pull us just far enough away that we get out of the safety of God and the covering of God and into real trouble. And so he's warning us with an idea that we could use the warning if we take it to heart. So you know what the warnings do? They reveal the condition of our heart. Because when we respond to them and say, you know, that could happen to me, I could be like that. When we take it to heart, not so that we can judge other people, but so that we can evaluate ourselves, then we're really using it correctly. Moses is not trying to get everybody down. He's trying to lift everybody up. And he knows for himself that God spoke to him some things that he didn't do. And he did the contrary. And there's a day of reckoning for that. It's not rejection, but there are consequences for him. 
And he's accepting that without bitterness. But he's saying to Israel, you are as vulnerable as anybody. You're, you're the beloved of God, but you're not going to live up to it. And people can hear that. It's like, well, what's the use of even trying then? That's the wrong way. Or we can be boastful and self-confident, like Peter was when Yeshua warned him and said, I would never do that. These guys would. I wouldn't. Not me. Not me. But you know what's much better is if we say, no temptation has seized us, but such as is common, common to men and women. The temptations that we're vulnerable to are the temptations people are vulnerable to. And we always want to be on guard. We want to be careful. We don't want to see how close to the line can we get. And does lightning actually strike if you cross the line? That's not the goal. The goal is to see that's danger, so keep, keep your distance from it. When we take war prophetic warnings to heart, whether we're from Nineveh, from Israel, or from Jacksonville, when we take them to heart, they become useful to us. And in their usefulness, they help us become humble before God. And we don't think too highly of ourselves. It's really the theme from Isaiah 57, one of the prophetic themes of Yom Kippur. Thus says the Lord, the exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy place, but also, but also with the broken and the humble in order to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the hearts of the broken ones. The Lord is saying, when you've gone through experiences that bring you to humility, and even brokenness. That's when God can really reach you. And God, who is in the highest place, and he's utterly holy, he comes down to be not with the mighty, but with the broken and the humble. I won't fight them forever, or always nurse my anger, otherwise their spirits would faint before me, the creatures I myself have made. Isaiah 57, 17 goes on, it was because of their flagrant greed that I was angry and struck them. I hid myself and I was angry, but they continued on their own rebellious way. I've seen their ways and I will heal them. I will lead them and give comfort to them and to those who mourn for them and I will create the right word, shalom, shalom to those far off and to those nearby, says the Lord, I will heal them. Whenever someone is coming to the Lord, not out of boastful pride, but out of a sense of humility, of insufficiency and weakness, and we say to the Lord, I can't heal myself. That's when the Lord says, you know, I, was, I hid myself from you for a while. You saw that but I'm here to tell you, I'll heal you. I will heal you. I'll renew you and restore you. What's so important is when we receive the healing and the recovery from God that we do not 
become self-satisfied and complacent, and we don't think, hey, I'm better, I don't have any more need for God. No, you're better because of God's mercy. Now, this way of talking about negative things and their utility is, is not cynicism, like I said, or fatalism. And it's not negative. Um, it's not a kind of pessimism or negativity. It's a recognition of human nature that sometimes we have to see where things will go if we go in a direction. My father taught me Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And those words are very familiar to many of us. Hope for the best means that we keep our eyes on and our hearts expecting good, but we plan for what can go wrong. It's not that we're pessimistic, lowering our expectations and thinking nothing good will ever happen, but rather we're thinking, if something good is going to happen, I also have to think about what could keep it from happening. And I have to plan, how will I deal with that? How will I avoid that? How will I fix it? What will I do if I get in trouble? I remember during a difficult period in my life, I thought God could help me if, if Hasatan attacked me. I thought God could help me if um, somebody else cause trouble for me, but I actually thought God couldn't help me if I caused the problem. I thought I had to get myself out of it. It's my fault. And I can tell you, having tried, I had times when I couldn't get out of the trouble I created. It's a dilemma, a real dilemma. And that's when I discovered the mercy of God. I remember one point when I was having some difficulties and I said, Lord, I was singing a song to him. My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. You know, I was singing and happy, pretending to be happy all by myself. And I felt the Holy Spirit said, you don't believe that. And I had no defenses. It's like, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I, I said, I think I just need, I got to fix whatever I did that was wrong. And the Lord said, well, you can't fix it without help. My help. And so I said, well, what do I need to do? And he said, well, number one, you got to ask for help. <laughs> okay. How many type A personalities are in the room? You know, that's the last thing you want to do is ask for help of that kind. Am I right? It's like, I'll try harder. He said, so ask for my help, number one. Number two, tell the truth. And I thought, well, if I tell the truth, other people will know I'm in trouble. <laughs> and it was difficult medicine to swallow, but it was what was necessary. It was helpful. You see, if you want to get to the best, you're gonna to have to go through some difficulties, everybody does, you have to plan for them. This theology that says, um, you know, just have positive confessions, 
I mean, that can work in a small measure, but for a strategy of life, it's not very effective. It reminds me of the guy who really wasn't a believer. He really wasn't, but he had been to some crusade and someone told him, if you just walk down here and raise your hand, you know, you won't go to hell. And he thought, sure, <laughs> good deal. And then, sure enough, he dies, you know, some years later after living a, a reprobate life, and he wakes up in hell. And he looks around and he says, it's not hot, I'm not here. That's supposed to be a joke. You guys, <laughs> this kind of confession doesn't really help you. <laughs> It won't change anything by talking like that. Sometimes we need to tell the truth even when it's hard. We have to admit it to God and admit it to others. The scriptures are clear about that. It's not being disobedient to God, nor is it being faithless to tell the truth, to describe things as they are, nor to be concerned about how they could be. We should be. We should be alert to what can go wrong so that we can take steps to protect it. We want the best, but we need to face what can go wrong. There's power in facing the downsides and the negatives and the troubles and to face them squarely so that we can deal with them. It's not good to just deny that they exist. Now, some people just can't fit that into their theological framework, but I wanna, I wanna take you to a passage in Luke chapter 14, which speaks to this. Because Yeshua was not impressed by a boastful pride. He wasn't impressed by temporary enthusiasms. He wasn't impressed by people who acted like they were starting on a serious course, but really they weren't giving much thought to it. And quickly they would abandon. Luke 14, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Yeshua, and turning to them, he said, well, think of what he could say. You guys are great. Everything's perfect, you know. No cares in the world, hallelujah. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. Yeshua, you have not gone to a public relations course. <laughs> Yeshua, don't talk like that. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Excuse me, Yeshua. Our numbers are gonna go way down if you keep this up. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. And they'll say, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you figure that out before you start? Can you finish it? 
Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Those are hard words, aren't they? We have to give up everything we've got as if it just belonged to us in order to become faithful stewards of what we have, recognizing every good thing that we have belongs to him. And if it becomes the seduction that pulls us away, the shiny mirrors, you know, and the glitter that get our attention, if it becomes the thing that we become loyal to, the blessings God gave us, then we have misplaced our loyalties. And Yeshua is saying, I'm not so interested in a lot of people who start and then crash. I want disciples who count the cost. Now, what does it mean to count the cost? It means to look for the best in the goal, but to be ready to deal with the hard things that can keep us from reaching it. What could get me in trouble? What could be my downfall? What do I need to do? What am I likely to do? What are we likely to do? Have you ever been in such a difficult situation that you just thought, I give up? Well, that can defeat you entirely. If you're not ready for difficulty, when you face it and you say, I just give up, and you face it in the wrong way like that, then all it takes is a little bit of difficulty and you're out of the game. If fear is all it takes to, to keep you from going forward, not the actual difficulty, but the fear of the difficulty, it just takes enough fear and you're out. If you weren't in it because you were looking for a life with God and instead you were just looking for stuff, then the stuff will pull you away. It'll become more important than the life with God. That's the way it works. Yeshua is straight about that. So he says, think about it, count the costs. And he uses hyperbole often He'll make an extreme statement in order to sober us up. Why? Because we're so dull that we don't even listen if he's not talking in extremes. And he'll say, unless you give up everything, you can't, you can't even come with me. The rich young ruler comes and says, well, what do I need to do? And he says, well, sell everything and give it to the poor. Then come on. And he says, I got so much stuff. You're not talking to a poor boy. And he walks, that guy walks away forlorn, like, wow. And Yeshua lets him go. We talk like this, not because we're trying to 
have fewer people in the kingdom of God. We talk like this so that the people who come to God stick with God and grow and help others do the same. Moses understood it. Yeshua understood it. We may not have understood it because of the way we were taught or raised or whatever, but actually it's much better to face these difficulties and work your way through them and to do so with other people who are willing to do the same. Wouldn't you rather go through life's difficulties with people who are tough enough to survive difficulty? And with people who have been uh, purified in fire so that the, the impurities have been scooped off because they've been refined not once, not twice, three, four, five, six, seven times, and they've got what it takes to keep going even in the midst. Wouldn't you rather be with those people than a bunch of whiners who just, it wasn't what I thought, I'm gone. Yeah, I know I would. <laughs> I would much rather be with people who have uh, tender hearts but tough character and who love the truth and aren't afraid to face it and people who have the tenderness of mercy and forgiveness and gentleness but the honesty of truth. I'd much rather be with that group. I think you would too. And so what do we do? We have to become that. That's it. It's really simple. Right? Yeah. Then there's no negotiating. Then we can read Moses and say, it could have been me. It would have been me if I hadn't taken it to heart. And if we're just wagging our fingers and pointing our fingers, we're missing the warning of Isaiah 58. Put away the pointing of fingers that tries to put it on others and not on ourselves. We are the ones who are vulnerable. The people of God are the ones who are vulnerable to not following God. That's the problem. We need God. We need to stay straight with him. We finished Yom Kippur, and it doesn't mean we can just sigh with relief and say, okay, 355 more days to go, and I don't have to think about God. No, it's not like that at all. So wonderful times ahead. Times to anticipate challenges that we can accomplish with God's help and direction and with his character. Times of transformation, not just for us, but for the people around us, because here's the benefit. When we change, we can be more useful to other people who need us in a different condition than we're in for them to change. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this new year, we're asking that our hearts would be tender towards you and to your holiness and that we would take these things seriously, that we would use them for ourselves, for our children, for our families, and for those we love. Use us, Lord. Keep us close, we pray. Help us have tender hearts towards you and minds that are willing to be instructed. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Don't forget, we need some help to move chairs into the Talmudim room. But let's close with Aaron's blessing. Please rise.
If you're standing by yourself, if you don't mind just moving a little bit so you're not alone, that would be great. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha, Ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisemlecha shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.